Well, good evening, everyone. I wonder if you have ever really, really wanted something. Like perhaps has been Christmas has been coming up or your birthday has been coming up and you have really, really wanted something specific. I have a story about a time when I wanted a pair of shoes. Yes, I know it's stereotypical, like girly thing, but I really wanted these shoes. I've been looking at them for two years. Um, they were like trainers and they had like little fabrics of material sewn on them and they were made in South America and like they were made by like local people so the money went towards our local people who wouldn't have otherwise had a job to like do and they were made with like sustainable fabrics and like when you bought one they like planted a tree so they were like both very cool trainers and also like good for the world and I was really excited about them. The only problem was I was a student so I had no money. Um, and so they were like crazy expensive shoes, but they were definitely more expensive than Primark, which at the time was the only thing I could really afford because I was a student. And so Christmas was coming up, and so I asked my dad to buy me these shoes. And I picked out the specific ones I wanted because they came in several different shapes. And I sent the link to him, and I told him what shoe size I am because he's my dad and he has no clue. And so I was like, these, I want these shoes in a size six, please pretty please. And I told them months in advance because they come from South America so it takes time like you have to order them and they're made individually so that no material is wasted because you know good for the planet. So I was really excited about these shoes and when Christmas came around there was a shoe box shaped present under the Christmas tree and so I'm like yes two years I've been waiting to get these shoes they're gonna look amazing I was so excited I opened the shoes I open the box and inside the shoe box, because it is a shoe box, are a pair of shoes. They are not the shoes that I wanted. The shoes that I wanted had like a cream base and they had multicolored fabrics on them. So they're like bright and bold, but also at the same time subtle and understated. And they were cool and they were good for the planet. And these ones were like Vans, which I don't wear. And then they were, I don't, I don't wear. And then they were black, which is not cream. And they had like little silver stars on them. And there's nothing wrong with that, but they looked like shoes that would belong to a much younger person than I was. Like I was like 21 or something, and I wanted the cool trainers. And I got these shoes, and I think they were designed for like seven-year-old girls. And I opened them, and my dad's there, and you know, I was raised to be a good girl. So I was like, thanks. I really appreciate it. <laughs> They've never been worn. They've never been worn. Um, for years, I carried around the box because I felt like it was a waste, and I moved it with me from house to house until eventually I just donated them to a charity shop because I was never going to wear them. The feeling that Christmas morning, and I think particularly because I really wanted them and I sh saw the shoebox, I believed I was going to get the thing that I really, really wanted. I was so excited, and then to open it and to see the exact opposite kind of shoe in that box. I still to this day remember this feeling. It was over a decade ago. <laughs> and I hold this very closely. I have never told my father this story. So if any of you meet him, <laughs> mum's the word, do not tell him. It's okay, he lives in China. He's not going to listen to the sermon online. I haven't told him I'm preaching this evening. We should be fine. And I can trust you hopefully all to keep my secret. I wouldn't like to upset him, but I was so, so disappointed with these shoes. I was so disappointed, it came out later to my mother, so my parents are divorced. So I could tell my mom without like fear of it being like 
passed across to the, the other parent. I was like, mum, I really wanted these specific shoes. And my mum looked, she's like, why didn't you tell me? And I was like, well, I told dad that I wanted the shoes. She's like, you should never tell your father that you want specific shoes. I've learned my lesson. I've never done it since, like as a thing. Because I think he thought, well, it's just the same, so it'll be fine. Like, you know, she wanted shoes, she got shoes. Like, what's the problem? And I don't want to be ungrateful, but I so wanted these trainers. To this day, I've never bought myself these trainers because, like, I was so disappointed that I've never wanted to be that disappointed ever since. And this evening, we're going to think a little bit about desire. Um, and this is the link that we're going with with the story. My desire for these shoes was so strong that I remember this story so clearly, like over a decade later. And this evening we're going to think about desire and the things that we desire. So we're going to turn to the passage and we're going to kind of go through it section by section. So Paul's writing uh, to the church in Corinth um, and he's well into his second letter here. Um, uh, he's, he's talked about a bunch of other things. There's been some kind of drama in the church in Corinth that they've been through, um, but the church has like turned things around and Paul's now happy with them again. Originally not so happy, but now he's happy with them. So it's kind of like a reconciliation letter. Um, but he starts this section with bragging about a totally different church. Um, and he says, now brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. So he puts here together two sets of words that are contradictory. He says that the Macedonian churches are having a severe trial and yet they're experiencing overflowing joy. In the midst of their trial, they're experiencing overflowing joy. And he says also that they are extremely poor. And we know this to have been true about the Macedonian church. There was no... There was no money there. There was some genuine poverty. And we're not talking like we talk about how Jesus like, wasn't wealthy. We're not talking about Jesus level like poverty where like he had a skill and stuff like that. We're talking like there's an extreme poverty in this church here. And yet in them welled up a rich generosity. So trial and joy and poverty and richness. And he pairs these things together. The Macedonian church is an example because they are a contradiction right here that they're experiencing these really difficult times, that they do not have a lot, and yet they are having an overflowing joy coming out from them, that they have a rich and deep generosity in them. Um, and where does this kind of come from? He says, I testify they gave even as, as much as they were able, even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the Lord's people. So we see here the difference in their attitude that they have. In this difficult situation that they exist in, they see this act of giving, this being part of Paul's ministry, this being part of the ministry um, around, as a privilege. There's a really interesting attitude at play here in the Macedonian church. That they don't see themselves as we're the ones going through trial and therefore we're the ones that should be being looked after right now. They go, no, 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 we're so excited about God. Like, let us give more to him. They're so, like, so full of that kind of thing that it's noteworthy to Paul. And he's setting them out as an example for the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth was not like the church in Macedonia. The church in Corinth had money. Like, they had an income coming in. Like, they were doing pretty well for themselves. They were much more established. And so he's setting them out as an example, out of their poverty, out of their challenges, out of their hardship. 
Now, this money would have been a collection that would have gone around to all of the Christians in this newly established, sorry, the churches, you know, where they were struggling. The money would have been taken in to, to, to do good, to give to people who didn't have very much. And from the people that didn't have very much, so much had been given. And so he sets this out, firstly, as an example. And so it's a bit hard for us because we cannot hugely identify with the Macedonian church as a church. We are not in a period of severe trial. Um, We're not concerned here that we um, will have police come in and and raid us for meeting together. Um, We're not going through, um, as a church, like a period of extreme awfulness and difficulty. Um, And we're not a church that is experiencing extreme poverty. We're a Surrey church. We live in an area that is wealthy. We are a church that is wealthy. I say this with the vicar right there, and I know that he's like all about raising money at the moment so we can do new things. But I mean, we're not a church in poverty. Like that's not a word that could be used to describe our church. Um, And so there's something here um, that might be difficult to learn because we can't really relate hugely as a church to the Macedonian church. Um, And so if you can relate personally in your specific life circumstances to the Macedonian church right now, um, nothing that I'm saying this evening is designed to be like to make you feel more challenged or to make you feel bad or guilty or anything like that. If you're coming this evening and you're experiencing extreme trial or extreme poverty and you just need to feel God's love, like we are here for you, he loves you, he wants you to be here, like we're very excited to be inclusive. But what I'm talking about this evening is us as a church. And where we're not like connecting to that. And so we could be much like the church in Corinth had these churches held up as an example. Some of these countries that we named out in prayer earlier would also set a similar example for us. The way that they serve God in the times that they're going through. The way that they choose him again and again, even when um, you know, the government of their country is against them, even when the people of their country are against them. The way that they experience real deep joy in the presence of God, in the, the conviction that they have that they want to, to live and serve him and know him here on earth, despite all of the trials that they're going through the way that they give super generously um, to other people in need. like They think not first of themselves, but of how much they can give out of their need. How many churches could we think of um, who are in different, perhaps, countries and different parts of the world that we could be challenged by? Like, and how much more they give and how much more of an attitude. And here is the core of what Paul's saying as well, where he says, they pleaded with us for the privilege. When he's talking about generosity here, he's talking about an attitude towards that. That it's a privilege to be part of God's work. Like, that their attitude is such that they go, I'm excited to be this. We're desperate to be this. Please don't exclude us from what God is doing because we have less than you do. They're desperate to be part of it. Um, And as we move on uh, through that, Paul turns to the church in Corinth. Um, and in verse 7, he, he, he does a thing, and I, I, I like to read Paul, I feel like he's a bit sarcastic. I understand that scholars probably debate whether or not this is a sarcastic sentence or not, but I'm going to read it with a sarcastic tone, because I think it fits. In verse 7, he says, But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Do you see how it works if you say it kind of sarcastically? Um, there's like a little, there's like a little, you know, like there's a little challenge there. It's like a little backhanded compliment. Like, since you think that you're so good at all of these things, make sure that you actually follow through with it. 
How many times could it be said of us that we think that we're doing pretty well as Christians? And then the, somebody gives a little nudge and says, yeah, but also actually, have you, have you thought about this? Is that Paul's kind of like nudging with that a little bit? I don't know, maybe he's not being sarcastic, but I think that's the way I kind of read it. And he says, he phrases it in a specific way here, that you excel in the grace of giving. Paul's very clear that this attitude of generosity is something that flows from God. It's a grace, it's a gift. It's not a burden he's putting on them. Paul's not turning around to them being like, you should give more money because I said so. Actually, what he's urging for, what his heart for the church in Corinth is that they would receive from God this gift, this grace, this desire to give, this right attitude that is the seeking of the privilege of donating towards God's work, that this generosity would come from God. It's not that it's something that you, know, you like work on or you must just do. It's, he's not giving like a Ten Commandments commandment style list of like action points. Actually, he's saying like this generosity, this attitude that the Macedonian church shows is a gift from God. It flows from him, from your connection with him. And he follows on in verse 8, I'm not commanding you, um, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And here he's moving, he's not talking um, about like a physical, practical poverty. He's talking about that spiritual sense where God had all of his, Jesus had all of his divinity there and he chose to lay it aside. He chose to become human. I don't know if you can even imagine what that must have been like to have been able to like create the universe, to make the stars, to be part of forming creation, to understand it totally, to have an ability to oversee all of it and know it deeply and intimately and to choose to empty yourself of that knowledge, to empty yourself of that power, to become just a human being, limited in time and space, limited by like tiredness and a need to sleep, like limited, I always think of like Jesus as a baby, like he had to have his bottom wiped. Like he made the world, he made the universe and he chose to become something so fragile that he wouldn't have survived if Mary hadn't looked after him well. Like, is that not just the most insane thing? That he chose to become poor. He chose to become poor even to the, to the extent of death, death on a cross. And for a reason, that we might become rich, that we might come into God's presence that there might not be a barrier between us and him, that we might have that spiritual witness. Whereas before we could not know God and we could not be with God and we could not be in his presence, now that we can. And so that we experience that richness, he was willing to become poor. And in that same attitude that Jesus had is the same attitude that Paul is extolling in the church in Corinth that is a challenge for us today. How we can have that same attitude, that we look at Jesus and we see what he gave up we saw how he sacrificed and we ourselves are filled with like a desire to sacrifice as well, that we reflect um, who Jesus was. And that's like about the heart that's at the core of this. The Bible tells us that God looks not at the outward appearance, he looks at the heart. It's not, he's not looking at our actions, he's not looking at our bank balances and seeing like how much we donated to charity. He's looking at the, the motivation we have with it. He's looking at the heart. And when he looked at Jesus on the cross, he didn't go, oh yes, well, you followed through and you died. He looked at how Jesus was willing to do it for the love of the people around. How he had stayed pure and sinless and faultless out of the desire to honour his father. 
and how he had then, out of love for us, held himself onto that cross. It's the heart that God is interested in, and so the heart that Paul is interested in here. And verse 10, here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. So he's drawing a comparison between what their attitude was before. Before, he had seen a willingness in them. They were keen to donate this money. Um, They were keen to be involved in the wider work and the wider ministry that was happening amongst God's people. And he's laying out a challenge here. Because whilst we can say it's about the heart and it's not about the actions, those two things cannot be so easily separated from each other. If we have the desire to serve God, our actions will also follow. And so he says, let me know that you are whole in that. Let me know that you are whole in that. Let me know that your desire or the, the desire that you voice is true and genuine, that it comes through. Complete that. Put your hand in your pocket and, and share that out. Um, and in this circumstance, we're talking about um, generosity and giving of money. But of course, there's so many other areas where this teaching can be true. When we say, um, I want to know God better. And then you go, well, do your actions follow up with that? Like, are we spending time with God? Like, do we put time aside for him? Um, Are we making, you know, coming to church and worshipping with other Christians a priority? Are we making time with him in the day-to-day a priority? Or we say, um, sometimes like, I want to love my family. (laughs) But are we spending time with them? Are we praying for them? Or we say, we want our friends to come to know Jesus. But are we actually praying for them? Where you've written your pray for five names down on a card... Are we committing regularly to actually praying for those five people or did we write the names down a card and it's gone in a drawer somewhere and we've kind of forgotten about it? You see how our hearts and our actions line up. It's not, it's not really one without the other. And as we come on down here towards the end of the passage, he says, our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard pressed, but that there might be equality. Paul is not trying to bring a message of guilt or shame. He's not trying to encourage this church uh, to donate more money um, because they feel bad about it. Um, it's not about that because actually that's, that's not how God works. He doesn't work through like guilt and shame. Um, he's not kind of, uh, uh, whilst he is a God who judges, he's not standing in judgment trying to make us feel bad about ourselves. And he's not trying to bring about change and, um, and, and um, transformation in our souls through guilt and shame. But by the joy that it is of knowing him. Back in the Macedonian church, it was the overflowing joy that came out from them in their trial. And when we spend time in God's presence, like that is the kind of emotion that we experience. Like we don't spend time in God's presence. You've never heard somebody be like, I met with God in worship and afterwards I felt really awful. Like that's not the experience that we have. I met with God and afterwards I felt a deep peace. I felt a deep joy. I felt a deep excitement. And from out of that flows... Um, and he also is not, uh, he's not trying to, to put a pressure on the church in Corinth, like, oh, I want you to like, put yourselves into poverty. Um, he's not trying to make them um, you know, become in a situation where they are hard-pressed, but he wants it to be a quality that churches who are struggling and churches that are blessed would meet each other's needs. I found really interesting here, it says, at the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. Paul seems to have an expectation here 
that the church in Corinth, which is currently in a, in, at the time of his writing, was in a time of richness, will in the future go through a time of need. And I found that a really interesting attitude. Because perhaps where we are, we think a lot and we talk a lot about good stewardship of our resources. We'll talk a lot about how we must look after our money well. Um, and of course, you know, when we have families and people to take care of responsibilities, people we should be looking after, that makes sense. Um, but even as a church, you know, we talk about good stewardship, good use of our money. So we make sure we have enough in our savings and we make sure we put a sensible amount here and a sensible amount there. Um, and perhaps us with our personal finances, we make sure we put a sensible amount into investment, a sensible amount into our retirement fund, um, all of these kind of things. I'm not actually criticising any of those practices. But there's a really interesting sense here that Paul expects there to be seasons of richness and seasons of poverty. And he expects that in seasons of richness, this churches would give sacrificially to one another, to those who are in seasons of poverty. And that, so that then, when we go through that season, and I wonder sometimes we err a little bit on the side of protecting ourselves against difficult situations that might come to the exclusion of helping people who are currently in need. We go, well, no, I've protected that and I must keep it aside. And we perhaps use that phrase of good stewardship almost as a little excuse, like we must keep that. We must keep that because we must look after ourselves first and make sure that we're okay. But actually the expectation here is really freeing because we know that it is true that there are times of richness in life and there are times of hardship. We know that it's true that there are like countries that go through times of richness and they go times of hardship. We know as families we go through times of good and times of poor. Like that there is a, there's a cycle that, that we can meet with God in different ways in both of those places. That is not a sign of God's blessing on us that we're in a rich area at the moment or that we live in a rich country. Like that's not a sign that God's particularly blessed us. But it is a sign that we have blessings to share with other people. And so perhaps there's a small challenge there to think, instead of protecting ourselves for our future, how much more could we be giving to those who are currently in need and currently struggling? And there's a humility in that as well. It is, I think, again, that perhaps there's a bit of our culture that says, like, we should make sure that we take care of ourselves. Um, we should make sure that we're never the one that, like, needs to ask for help. Like, we're always the ones that help. Like, there's always, a, there's always a desire, isn't there, to be the one that, like, has it all together and is, like, okay and ready to go. There's a desire, like, as a church, like, we think of ourselves a little bit in that way because we have been able to bless other churches around us really positively. Um, but there's, there's like an internal thing, like as a family, like as a household or as an individual, you might, you know, always want to be the one that like kind of has it together. But there's a humility in being able to say, yes, now perhaps I'm in a time of goodness and a time of plenty, but I expect to go through a time of difficulty. And when I go through that time of difficulty, I will not be ashamed to ask for help because I know that God gives and he takes and he is Lord and God both like um, in those times of good and plenty and in those times of struggle as well. As there's a humility there, something about the connection that these churches have with each other, that the ability to give is also the ability to receive, you know, as you have given sacrificially, so you can ask for help later when you need it. And so we come back to desire. I've wanted many things in my life, uh, more than those shoes, um, as much as I'm still kind of sad about it. What is it internally that is our desire? What are our deepest desires? 
what we've been talking about today because it's our gift day as a church. Um, it's seen in practical action. It's seen in practical action of us donating money so that we might expand the mission, what God is doing here at Emmanuel. There is a practical call. There is a response to be given, like how much is God asking you to give towards this? But it's the story of the widow's might, isn't it? She gave out of her poverty all she had to live on. And it's her offering that was honoured, not the offerings that were larger, that, that had more, that went off and I'm sure blessed more people because it was her heart of her trust, her faith. And that comes from the desire. And so there's time to spend to ask God to adjust our desires, to grow them to be more godly, to grow them to reflect his desires more. Sometimes I think we, you know, we ask God, like, oh, help me to do certain things. But actually, what we want to do is become more like Jesus, that our heart will be more in line with God's. And so perhaps there's a challenge this evening to ask God to grow in us that desire that the Macedonian church had, to be part of the privilege of giving, to be part of the privilege of serving, to be part of the privilege of giving away, of being humble enough to know that it's not about us, um, but it's about following the example of Jesus. And yes, yeah, so I think that as we come back like around to the, to the beginning again, it's about that desire. What do we desire to do? And as that comes with actions, um, perhaps it's not good to sit there and say to God alone, like, please make me want to give up all of my money and then just wait for that desire to come around. It feels unnatural, right? Um, and so those two things go together. We do our actions and our desires go together. And as we step out in faith, we find that God comes through for us and then we're excited to step out again and step further and step further. Um, but perhaps just for this evening, my encouragement, my challenge to you all um, is to ask God to grow in us that desire that we might give more, that we might see um, out of the richness of what we have, how much more that we can give. Um, not because God wishes to take things away from us, but because we're excited for the privilege of being part of what he's doing, both here, um, but also across the world, um, but also very specifically in the lives of our friends and our loved ones. How, how God, can you grow that desire in me to be part of what you're doing? Um, so we, we're having a song next, right? I'm going to invite you all to stand. Do stand up with me. And we'll have a moment. Perhaps you might want to put your hands out like this. And just have a moment with God. God, you know the desires of our hearts. Examine us now. Speak to us, Lord.